Hey y'all, welcome back. This is season three, episode two of the Slayless Show. Um, the last time we met was the first episode of the season, the first podcast of the season. And I talked a lot about um, what I'm going to be talking about this season. And today what we're going to be discussing is, again, colorism um, and black elitism and how they kind of tie in together, how they further cement and perpetuate and prop up white supremacy and some different examples of this just kind of being very prevalent within black culture. So first things first, on my Instagram page at the Slayless Show, I posted a picture of the famous Spike Lee movie School Days. Now School Days is like a really, really, really brilliant social critique of how colorism is perpetuated throughout HBCUs and just colleges in general. Um, I remember going to UNT And I grew up, you know, my mom was a nurse. Uh, My father was in the military. My grandparents, my mom, my grandma was a nurse. Uh, My grandpa was like a 20 year veteran in in the Air Force and ended up getting a master's degree and worked for the state treasury for some time after that. So I come from like, you know, relatively educated people, people that um, for the most part, in many ways, unfortunately did kind of subscribe, excuse me, subscribe forgive my words, y'all, I'm struggling today, subscribe to um, a certain level of like respectability politics. Um, But I think what's really interesting is when I went to college and I got introduced to like, well, further introduced to to black Greek life and black Greek letter organizations and started really diving more into African-American history and studying, you know, Booker T. Washington and Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois I noticed um, and became, you know, aware of this idea of the talented 10th, which is an idea perpetuated by the famous sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois. I always struggle with how to pronounce his name. Du Bois, Du Bois. We're going to call him Du Bois. If that's wrong, y'all can correct me in the comments or something. But um, he largely perpetuated this idea of the talented 10th or the top 10% of African-Americans being college educated, um, this really black elite class, um, and then putting their best foot forward to, to, you know, for white people to, to better accept and be more willing to accept them into their circles. Um, and I just want to say like black elitism often functions under the guise of respectability politics and it functions within an already larger system of capitalism patriarchy and white supremacy which white supremacy is literally a baby a baby child of a system of capitalism and so is is patriarchy and we're going to talk and spend a lot of time on that later on this season and if you haven't um looked at some of the past episodes i did a whole season talking about capitalism in various aspects and um i think we'll we'll further tie this together as we go throughout the season but um this idea of the talented 10th and this idea that there is a certain class of black people that are college educated that you know have money and have wealth um that directly ties into colorism because it operates under a proximity to whiteness and so these these um, financial opportunities, these educational opportunities historically have been given and granted to black people that are lighter. Um, this stems from slavery. 
the old, you know, the very well-known field nigga versus house nigga conversation where darker skinned people were forced to work in the fields and lighter skinned people often had, um, and I won't say the privilege because I, I don't necessarily think it's a privilege to be in closer proximity to your master by working in the house. I think it does make you in many ways, uh, closer to abuse, closer to trauma, closer to oppression in a lot of ways. So I want to be very clear in stating that, but lighter skinned slaves were often delegated to the house a lot of the time because these lighter skinned slaves were often the children, the illegitimate children of the slave master. Um, and so they were often granted opportunities, not because in any way the slave master or white people felt that they were more deserving of humanity. I mean, in some instances, of course, but because uh, they were lighter their proximity to whiteness granted them opportunities that other slaves, people who were less racially ambiguous, who were darker, would not have. And over time, this group of people developed into the first class of black people that were able to own property, were able to, you know, um, advance in their education, basically socially mobilize upward. And so when we talk about the Talented Tenth, uh, we talk about those first members of Greek letter organizations, black Greek letter organizations, uh, people who were at HBCUs, the people who were college educated, this is that same class of people, and this cycles out throughout generation, right? And um, black elitism, I think some people would have you believe that it doesn't exist anymore. That is false. It definitely exists still. Um, it definitely is still very, very prevalent within the schism in the black community, the people who are college educated, you know, and the people who are still living in poverty, still maybe living like, you know, basically on the fringes of society who are left with very little opportunity to get, you know, an education to advance in any way or socially mobilize upward. Um, but this group of people was typically and historically always lighter. Now, W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey, who was very pro-black, um, ended up, if I'm not mistaken, getting like deported from America because of the things that he stood for. They were deported and they deported him for like something crazy, like mail fraud or some shit like that. But they had this, there was this schism and this schism developed very early on. This is like the early 1900s um, where competing black intellectuals like Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey are all arguing about the best way for black people to be able to have a sense of dignity, a, a ways to basically advance their lives. And W.E.B. Du Bois uh, perpetuates this idea of the Talented 10th. Now, the Talented 10th is the most elite of the Black people. These are the people who are college-educated, who have great jobs, own property. And they're the ones who are, as I stated earlier, typically lighter. Now, when I got to college, fast forward to 2009, um, I felt equipped to be in the space, in the place that I was. I was like, you know... I'm here. I want to pledge. I, you know, I want to pledge a sorority. I want to get good grades. I want to, you know, at one point potentially transition into like student leadership, all these different things. Um, but also I was poor. Like my mom is disabled as a disabled woman. Um, I was an Emerald Eagle scholar at UNT, meaning we did not make enough money. So I, I was eligible for a certain level of grants, um, basically scholarships, grants to pay to help fund and pay for my education. And in starting to get more involved 
um, within black circles, even at UNT, which is not an HBCU. It has a pretty large, what felt like it. I don't know actually like what the numbers are and the statistics actually were, but we have a, we, I felt like we had a really large black population there. And in getting involved in um, college life, I noticed um, that there were some people who just seemed to be kind of like placed in a position to just do and get and achieve more. And, you know, under after further, like, you know, investigation, these people's parents were part of Greek letter organizations and they grew up in like, you know, like these really wealthy parts of Dallas or, you know, they grew up in these really wealthy black parts of Dallas or Houston. Like their parents had money and their parents were part of Greek letter organizations and their parents were educated. And it started to kind of like click to me, like this schism as, as far as like, people who are poor and people who have means as far as their parents having had means or their parents having, you know, basically initiated themselves into these upper echelon black circles, which let me be very clear, black Greek letter organizations, even to this day, constitute a lot of the black elite, like the people who have money, the people who are educated, the people who have a certain level of access to more, you know, resources than other black people do. And I guess now I'm kind of part of that group too now. You know, I pledged, uh, I have a master's degree. I'm a third year PhD student. I suspect that my daughter, and this is just me, you know, my faith in the Lord and me hoping, I suspect that she will not, probably won't be, what's the word I'm looking for? She's probably not going to be really, generally disadvantaged more than likely um just because of the trip the just the the trajectory ah, excuse me the trajectory of my life and where it seems to be heading and the things that I want for her and the things that I tirelessly work to create for her in our future and the position I'm continuously working to put us in and keep us in so it's just interesting to kind of think about um but in order to historically there, this is, you know, well documented in order to get into these black Greek letter organizations or to be accepted into these black elite social circles, you had to be a certain skin tone. And again, a lot of the success in America for anybody, for any ethnic or marginalized group is how well you can assimilate into whiteness, which people are like how how much can you be an american but really let's let's be for real here being an american has a lot to do with being white and looking you know meeting these these ideals that are associated with whiteness i'm not saying that people from other groups cultural groups ethnic groups nationalities cannot be educated but here in america in many many ways that those ideas are tied to whiteness so you know a lot of the time when we talk about success and we talk about you know wealth and all these different things a lot of that's tied to whiteness historically and we know why because they've harbored most of the resources for the past you know a couple hundred years and any of those groups that are successful today is because they have been able to successfully assimilate into the sphere of whiteness and therefore they are able to access some of the privilege that comes with being white which is you know education and money and property ownership and the ability to pretty much you know call the shots in your own life and to move freely which a lot of people of color a lot of people from marginalized groups to this day still do not totally have and may not ever totally have you know there are there are ethnic groups that are going through what we call and what racial scholars people who, who critically study race will tell you is like you know a process of whitening 
which is like basically them going through like generations where each each generation has more and more access or more assimilation or, or more closer proximity to what is considered to be white. And um, what's interesting, again, is that in order for black people, in order for you to be a part of those black elite circles and to be able to access in access those resources and participate in the privilege that comes with that, you had to be a certain skin tone. So there's this thing, and I'm sure some of you have probably already heard of it, called a brown paper bag test. So, you know, the brown paper bag test, it was used at the Cotton Club. It was used to determine, you know, whether or not you would be eligible to join a black Greek letter organization. It was used even sometimes to, you know, determine whether or not you could get into a certain or particular HBCU. And the reason that is, is because blackness is associated with being lowly. Like the darker you are, the blacker you are, that is associated with, you know, lower class, um, you know, as extreme as like being dirty or filthy, being uneducated, uh, you know, being over sexualized or even asexualized, um, all these different things. And so in order to like have access to all this stuff, you had to be lighter than a brown paper bag. Like this is, these are facts. Like, you know, even till to, even to this day, in particular, two sororities that I know that are, I don't, I wouldn't say they, they themselves maybe perpetuate this anymore, but the stereotype is that if you're a pretty light skinned woman and you want to pledge a sorority, you're probably going to pledge AKA. If you're a pretty dark skinned woman, you're probably going to pledge Delta Sigma Theta. Um, I saw a meme the other day that, you know, the AKAs come from two parent households and, you know, the Deltas are raised by single moms. And, you know, all this ties into our ideas about colorism and about race and about what is considered good, what's considered bad, what's considered acceptable. Um, I think it's really interesting, especially when you watch the movie School Days, that schism, like the girls who were like, you know, it was it was the light skinned girls versus the Jigaboos. And I think that is very telling of how colorism continues to like perpetuate itself in some of like the, you know, even some of the most covert ways, honestly. But um, this idea that lighter skinned people have more access to material resources because of their skin being lighter and that they have, and I, mean, I say this idea, like this is actually like, there's plenty of evidence and research to support this. Um, these black elite circles being primarily, you know, associated with lighter skin is really like, you know, kind of depressing. Definitely, um, definitely disappointing. But we still see a lot of that today. So um, this is a rumor. And I don't really know the history of AKA because I'm not an AKA. I'm a Delta. But there is there's this there within black Greek letter organizations. There's this idea of like legacy admittals and like admittance. I said middle legacy admittance into some of these organizations based off of the fact of one of your family members or one of your parents was <laughs> in the organization. So I've heard this before. Like I said, I don't know how true this is. Correct me in the comments. Let's discuss it. But um, there is this idea that Alpha Kappa Alpha has this policy of legacy admittance into the organization because many of their light-skinned members 
were marrying men that were darker and thus producing darker skinned children that may not have been able to necessarily pass a brown paper bag test and not be able to be admitted into the sorority. And therefore, you know, they put in this legacy clause. Now, like I said, I don't even know if this shit actually exists. I'm not an AKA, I'm a Delta. I only know Delta business. And Deltas have a history of doing the same thing, um, denying membership to people who are not uh, light enough, or, you know, are, are not light enough or too dark. But anyhow, back to what I was saying about this legacy clause. You know, if you didn't, they put this clause in place basically to protect darker skinned women that wanted to pledge AKA that had lighter skinned mothers um, because they would not have been able to pass a brown paper da- brown paper bag test because their fathers were darker skinned. I think this is super interesting um, because it kind of shows how at some point in time over generations, um, there may be, there may, there probably was and probably is like increased acceptance for lighter skinned black people to marry into darker skinned families um, and produce, you know, children from the union or from the relationship. Um, But if you're upholding like this colorism ideal, you have to put something in place also to protect those children. So there's a like, there's a very, a very extensive history of black elitism And these circles wanting to protect their lineage and protect the shade of the children. Um, Louisiana is a really, really, really great example. I was actually just reading this thing about the part of Louisiana that's considered Creole Louisiana. And I I have extensive, extensive lineage in southeast Texas um, and Louisiana on my father's side, lots and lots and lots of Creole family, lots of family that is extremely light, really on both my sides on my mom's side and on my dad's side, but particularly in that part of the, that part of the country in Louisiana and Southeast Texas, where the Creole population is really, really big. And there are a lot of people who are historically mixed race, um, Creole being a combination of, you know, African, French, Spanish, and Native American. There is, um, Historically, there were a lot of conversations and dialogue about people not marrying, like you don't marry someone who's too dark or don't bring anyone who's too dark home because the children that you produce from that union are going to be too dark or they potentially might be dark skinned. They may be too brown. They're going to be, you know, darker than what is socially acceptable for our circle and for the the places that we do business the place that we move basically every you know our sphere of life and I think this is like super crazy because what it shows you when you really talk about that and you know this is the same place where they're famous for like having quadroon and octoroon balls where the you know there there are women who are a fourth black or an eighth black who are basically participating in debutante balls to either marry white or to become mistresses or concubines to wealthy white men, therefore further cementing their material and social well-being by increasing their proximity to whiteness. This is the same place. But the reason that they do not want to have darker skinned children is because, again, to be black, to be too black, to be dark skinned is associated with being uneducated, dirty, too sexual, um, all these things that are negative that are associated with blackness. And so again, 
this is a direct offshoot from white supremacy. And I think that's the biggest takeaway that I want people to understand when we talk about colorism. Colorism is not, when we have conversations, especially when dark-skinned people talk about colorism, it is not in any way to shit on light-skinned people, to make light-skinned people feel bad, to make light-skinned people feel like they're not black enough. I'm sure, I, I know for a fact those conversations happen, and I just want to be the first to say that that's wrong to tell someone who's light-skinned they're not black enough. Like, you're still black. But the way that you experience blackness and the way that somebody who's dark skin experiences blackness is very, very different because of the umbrella of white supremacy under which we live. So when we talk about these things, what I the biggest takeaway I want people to understand is that colorism is absolutely in 100 percent part of a system of racism, which is part of a system of white supremacy, which is part of a system of patriarchy which is part of a system of capitalism so when we talk about these things i want you to understand like the clear linkage in between them like i said we'll spend the season really further discussing all of these things and how they link together and why um colorism if we talk if we're going to dismantle racism we're going to dismantle systems of inequality we're going to dismantle systems of white supremacy we got to talk about colorism too we have to talk about that even in our some of our biggest social movements I talked about this in one of my classes. Um, one of my, I took, what classes did I took? I think I took it my senior year at college, like after like my undergraduate career. Um, what was it called? Damn, I can't even remember the professor's name that taught the class. But the class was about black women in the USA. It was, it was the history of black women in America. That's what the class was. And so the class primarily um, you know, talked about black women, but I remember she spoke about um, some of the social justice movements of the civil rights movement, black nationalism, even, you know, womanism and feminism, how a lot of the leaders and the people that were given the biggest stage and the biggest platform to talk about the oppressions and traumas and systemic racism, systemic oppressions that black people were facing were lighter skinned women with like these huge afros. Now, mind you, if you know anything about black hair, for you to have like a huge loose ass afro, you don't have like 4C, 4A, 4B hair more than likely. You have like looser curls, which typically come with, how do I say this? Come with like, you know, like if you're lighter, you have looser hair. Um, it's, it's kind of, it can be assumed at some point that you're probably like, you know, you may have some type of Caucasian or some other ethnic in your blood, ethnic ethnicity or nationality in your bloodline. And I think that's really important to talk about, um, when we talk about who has the stage and who has the platform when we talk about black people and we talk about people who are actually championing for our rights. So civil rights movement, like, you know, Martin Luther King went to Morehouse College. Did he go to Morehouse? Yeah, he went to Morehouse and he was an alpha, which is the first black fraternity. Morehouse is an HBCU that is dedicated to the education and betterment of young black men. Very famous, very famous HBCU. And so when we talk about these types of things um, and we talk about who has the foundation, who gets the stage to speak up, speak up for black people, I think it's really important that we critique 
black elitism and we critique the way that colorism plays into who has power because i think honestly and this is just me talking i think if we are not careful we will perpetuate further perpetuate systems of oppression that are already in place while we are trying to dismantle our own oppression so I think a lot of the time, I saw this a lot in student leadership, and I see this a lot. This is like a trend, and I think I'm going to end up doing a study about this, but this is a trend across, like, I think student orgs, black student orgs. A lot of the time, the people who are in charge of these organizations are lighter, and the people who have, you know, who get to speak about issues that affect black people are lighter, and I don't think that's a coincidence, I don't think that's a coincidence because in order for you to get to that a, a certain level of being able to have that type of platform, to have that type of foundation to speak about these things, you are in a space and a place where you have been granted some of that ability to speak openly by the white supremacist system in which we live. And I think also black people, we tend to prop up people who are lighter because of this unspoken I don't want to say self-hate, but like the way that we we even think about blackness ourselves and what we find attractive, which is also, again, rooted in white supremacy. And so we are t- we tend to give people who are lighter, this is especially true for women, we tend to give people who are lighter more of a platform, more of a space and place to speak. And I think that's really, it needs to be talked about. It needs to be discussed. It absolutely needs to be critiqued because that is a perpetuation of white supremacy. Why, if we are looking at a movement, okay, and we're critiquing a movement and everybody who's at the forefront of the movement is light and has big, loose curls, that is a problem. That's the issue. Just like we're not accepting of the fact that the three biggest black stars Even to this day, Nicki Minaj, Rihanna, and Beyonce, the Trinity, are women who are lighter. And they're black women, undoubtedly so. They are, I would say, I would go as far as to say they're, in my opinion, they're pretty pro-black. Like, as far as, like, you know, the level of of capital wealth, material wealth they've reached. I say, I kind of still feel like they're both, you know, not both, but all three pretty uh, aware of the fact that they're black and they care about black issues and they work for the betterment often of black people, um, both publicly and behind closed doors. But I also think um, if we're able to look at that and see why don't we have any, you know, like why don't we have any darker skinned women on TV? Why don't we have any darker skinned women that have reached that same level of success? We should be able to look at our social justice movements and wonder why, when we talk about hair, we talk about beauty, we talk about all these different things, or we talk about representation, we should be able to look at the people at the forefront of those conversations and those movements and ask a very critical question. Why do they fucking all look the same? Why are none of them darker than a brown paper bag? Why are none of them dark skinned? Why, you know, why do none of them have tightly coiled kinky hair? We have to ask ourselves these questions because I think if we don't, we continue to perpetuate a system that is basically imbued in, in, into white supremacy all right we've talked a lot about today let's, let's see what else we want to talk about what else we want to talk about let me check let me check let me check um let's see let's see let's see hmm 
just as an aside, um, I think this is a really interesting conversation. So a couple years ago when the Golden State Warriors and uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers, is it Cleveland? I don't be knowing y'all, I don't watch sports, but they were, you know, there was a series of years where they faced each other off in uh, the NBA playoffs. And there's a really good article. I have to find it and like post a link on my Instagram or on the Facebook page. Um, there is this really good critique about the way that America responded to Steph Curry versus how they were responding to LeBron James. Both of them are incredible at what they do. Both of them are young black men, very successful black men, um, both married with beautiful families, um, really just out there doing their fucking thing. Right. But the way that like public perceptions of Steph Curry from non-black people, apparently they were more accepting of him because of his skin tone versus LeBron James. You know, like Steph, LeBron James is a dark skinned man. He is very, very physically large, um, what some would consider, you know, if he wasn't a fucking basically couple hundred million dollar athlete, if he was walking on the street, people would be fucking afraid of him because he's big and he's he's dark. He's a dark skinned, tall, muscular, built ass black man versus Steph Curry, who was also very athletic, very in shape, very handsome but less imposing due to his size and due to his skin tone. And, um, you know, the conversation brought up, well, you know, Steph Curry was raised by a really good family. His dad was an NBA player. You know, his brother's in the NBA. His sister's a really good, his sister's a college athlete in comparison to LeBron, who was raised relatively poor in Cleveland, um, basically came from nothing and has spoken a lot about um, how he often compares himself to Allen Iverson, who kind of had had a similar upbringing. And... um, I think this is really interesting when we talk about public perceptions of both of them in comparison to each other because and I, this could have also this also has a lot to do with the fact that at this time Steph Curry like they were the champs they had you know they had won the NBA championship I think this was in 2000 was it 2015 it was one of those 2015 2016 or 2017 one of them years it was one of the one of those three years I think they faced each other off each time those three years but in that happening, public perceptions of Steph Curry, you know, he's like the golden child. Like, not not to say that about his skin, but like the big people loved him because, you know, he's like he represents he he represented more of like the America that the type of black person that America finds acceptable. Let's just put it that way. Two parent household. You know, he's not he's not super threatening. He's black, but he's not he's not too black. He, you know, he has money. He comes from a respectable background and comes from, you know, a group of educated people versus LeBron. And mind you, both of these men are super wealthy. They both currently are married and have beautiful families. But I thought public perception in like the way that people would talk about Steph Curry versus the way that people would talk about LeBron James. I remember when LeBron and the Cav- uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers lost to Steph Curry. I remember being on Twitter and Twitter was like, Twitter is still huge at the time, but like being on black Twitter and people would like being like people who were rooting for LeBron taking it as a personal slight because they were like, you know, damn, like light skinned people, they get everything. They get all the privilege. They get all this, you know, the Steph Curry, the, you know, just like basically talking shit about Steph Curry due to the fact that they felt like LeBron was being slighted due to his skin color. So I think um, that's something that we need to be continuously critical of. Who's at the forefront of our movements? 
when we talk about black people and we talk about the people who get the stage and the foundation, the platform to talk about black issues, what do they look like? Do they all look the fucking same? Because that's an issue because black people are very diverse. We come in various shades, various hair textures, various features, various body types. Literally black is a spectrum. We are literally, I don't know how people can sit there and and boldly proclaim that all black people look the fucking same because bitch, no, we do not. But when you talk about these things, when you critique these types of movements, I think it's really important to talk about how does, how is black elitism still being perpetuated? How is that rooted in respectability politics? How is that rooted in white supremacy? How is it further causing trauma and oppression for black people who do not look that way, who don't have that certain level of education, so on and so forth? Um, I think next week, what we're going to talk about is colorism and feminism. And we're going to continue this conversation about um, the type of black women who are at the forefront of beauty culture and hair culture and all these different things. So thank you so much for tuning in. I'm going to start keeping these podcasts relatively short. So about 30 to 35 minutes, I'm about to post this and I will see y'all again in two weeks time. Take care.